My name's Tim Bain. I'm uh, from the Faculty of Philosophy, and it's my great, great pleasure today to talk to you about some of the work that my team and I have been doing, which uh, operates in the space between neuroimaging and the philosophy of mind. Many species, many kinds of creatures have mental states, but perhaps human beings are the only species that is aware of its own mental states as such. I'm going to call this capacity, the capacity to be aware of one's own mental states, mind reading. And by that, I don't mean anything like clairvoyance or any other manifestation of the dark arts. I simply mean the ability to detect one's own mental states and the mental states of one's fellow human beings. There are two types of ways in which we are aware of our own mental states. We're aware of our mental states via introspection, and we're aware of the mental states of each other on the basis of behavioral cues. Here we have a wonderful illustration of mind reading, both behavioral and actually the absence of introspective mind reading. We have here the uh, nobleman, I hope you can see it, uh, whose attention is obviously fixated on the fortune teller. Uh, he's not a very good mind reader. He doesn't, he's not aware that his pocket's being picked um, and that he's rapidly being uh, divested there of his fortune. Uh, the fortune teller and her accomplices are very good mind readers. They know exactly where the young nobleman's attention is. And if the young nobleman were a little bit more introspectively savvy, he might be aware that his attention was not where it ought to be and that he's going to end the day rather poorer than when he began it. So we have a nice example there of the absence of introspectively based mind reading and a nice example of behaviorally based mind reading. I want to contrast those two ways, two traditional ways we have of detecting mental states with a third kind of way, which is very new and hasn't been studied in the way that introspectively based and behaviorally based mind reading have. My focus today is on neurally based mind reading, the use of neuroimaging, in particular fMRI or functional magnetic resonance imaging, to ascribe mental states to individuals. I'm going to give you two examples, two recent examples of mind reading based on neuroimaging, and then I'm going to discuss some of the philosophical questions raised by this line of work. The first example of neuroimaging based mind reading comes from work that John Dylan Haynes and Garant Rees have done. They took advantage of the fact that pictures of buildings and pictures of faces activate rather different areas in the brain. So pictures of uh, buildings are activated by the parahippocampal place area, the PPA, whereas pictures of faces activate in a selective fashion the FFA, the fusiform face area. And what they did in this wonderful experiment, very simple experiment, is they asked subjects, uh, undergraduates, to simply imagine a building or to imagine a face. And then they had a neutral observer, someone who didn't know what the person was trying to imagine, try to guess what they're imagining based on the fMRI data. So they looked at their brain signals, and they were able to detect up to 85% accuracy whether the undergraduate was imagining a building or whether he or she was imagining a face. A very simple, very elegant example, a proof, if you will, of the use of neuroimaging to read someone's mind. The second example of mind reading is rather more interesting and rather more controversial. It's a study done by Adrian Owen when he was at Cambridge, but still a good study nonetheless, uh, involving the, uh, a woman who was uh, in a persistent vegetative state. She had, uh, a 23-year-old woman had been in a car accident and had been in a persistent vegetative state for six months. 
That means she hadn't been able to produce voluntary behavior, no behavioral signs of consciousness whatsoever. And what they did was they asked this woman, they wheeled her into the fMRI scanner, and they asked her to either imagine playing tennis, they gave her a 30-second block with that command, or to imagine visiting the rooms of her house. And they did this because they knew that there were very specific areas of the brain that are active when you imagine a motor action like playing tennis, as opposed to walking around the rooms of your house. And if you look at the top line there, you can see uh, the data from the, the patient. You can see the top of her skull has been um, indented there a little bit as a result of the accident. And they found, as they, um, one would expect, if she were conscious, that there was activation in the SMA for the tennis imagery. That's an area of the brain that's responsive to motor imagery. And various areas, including, again, the PPA in the spatial navigation um, task. This is the data here from 12 controls. And she falls within the boundary of these 12 controls. If you put her data together with data derived from these 12 controls who were um, individuals without any brain damage, you wouldn't be able to tell which of the data was from her case and which was from one of the 12 normal controls. Uh, as you will have seen from the, the headline that I put up on the previous slide, the researchers put a rather controversial spin on this finding. They argued in the very title of the paper that this was evidence that this patient was aware, even though she was not able to produce any signs of awareness via behavior. And this generated rather uh, uh, a sizable storm in the scientific journals, with many scientists and not a few philosophers saying that data really did not justify this interpretation whatsoever. So what I did with some colleagues is we organized a workshop here and then another workshop in Budapest, where we brought together the experimenters who had done this work um, and various philosophers, and we discussed whether, in fact, the interpretation that they've put on it, this mind-reading interpretation, is justified. And one of the papers that came out of that is a paper I published with a um, colleague here. Um, sorry, it's missing from the slide. Um, but one of the papers that came out of that was in the British Journal for the Philosophy of Science, where we, in fact, defended this original interpretation, drawing on some um, work in the philosophy of science and in the philosophy of mind. Let me turn now to some of the general questions that this research raises. First general question is, what are the limitations of neurally based mind reading? The two examples of mind reading that I've given you focus on imagery. But one might want to ask whether one can use these techniques to ascribe, for example, beliefs to a person. Could you tell just by looking at someone's neural profile what they're believing? There are many interesting differences between belief and imagery. And it's not at all clear whether this process will enable us to read people's minds, will enable us to understand what beliefs they have. That's something, that's a question that we're currently working on. Second question that you might have is how this new form of mind reading might be integrated with more traditional forms of mind reading that appeal to introspection and behavior. So here's a thought experiment. Suppose that you thought you were in pain, that is, you add introspective access to a rather vivid pain. And someone, while you're in pain, puts you into the fMRI machine and says, well, we've looked at your brain, and we've decided that you're actually not in pain. I don't imagine you'd be very impressed with the uh, fMRI data. But what we don't have is a model of how to integrate these various ways we have of ascribing mental states, of thinking about ourselves as minded creatures. And that's something that my team and I is trying to develop. The third question of interest to philosophers is whether 
This sort of research might, in the future, displace the intuitive conception we have of ourselves. The two experiments that I've presented to you today employ our intuitive, everyday framework for thinking about the mind. They talk about imagery. Um, they distinguish between imagery of buildings and imagery of faces in a very everyday kind of way. But there's a question of whether this sort of research might lead us to develop a radically new picture of ourselves as mental beings. And finally, there's a real pressing question of how this sorts of research can be presented to the public in a way that's both accessible and accurate. The pictures that are put up look like photographs of the brain, but they're not. They're not at all photographs of the brain. The bits that are in orange are highlighted by the software to indicate statistical significance. The brain itself is not orange, but it sort of looks that way if you haven't thought about it. This research is going to be increasingly important in the courtroom. It's going to be important in contexts of ethical decision making, and we need ways in which the complexity of this research and the philosophical sophistication that's needed in order to understand it can be presented. Some of this work might remind you of phrenology, a 19th century pastime. I'm not sure if you can see it, but there's a, uh, an area here which is, um, indicates it's the area which is responsible for love of your children. Uh, here's another area which is responsible for competitiveness. Phrenology, as we know, was a pseudoscience. It was a bogus science. But using neuroimaging to ascribe mental states to individuals is not a bogus science. It's an immature science. But it is a science, and we need engagement, we need collabor collaboration between the scientists and the philosophers and the psycholo psychologists to work out exactly how it might be best developed. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>